when they took me to the unit and told me this is my cell to open the, the uh, gates, um, you could just hear the noise as soon as you walked on the tier, guys just screaming. Um, and then when I walked inside the cell, it was just so small. You know, I could just reach my arms out and touch, you know, both walls. If I put my hands up high enough, I could touch the ceiling. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, the Executive Director, and today we're pleased to welcome back one of the Forum's long-standing guests, Chris Hedges, to talk about his latest book, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. Since 2013, Hedges, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, has been teaching courses in drama, literature, philosophy, and history in the college degree program offered by Rutgers University, to inmates in the New Jersey prison system. His latest book is a hauntingly powerful account of the voices trapped within a cruel penal system that too often defines their lives. After studying August Wilson's work and others, Hedges' class at East Jersey State Prison decided to write their own play, Caged, which played to sold out audiences at the Passage Theater in Trenton, New Jersey, and went on to be published. In our class, Hedges chronicles the class's grief and suffering, as well as their personal transformations. They're crafted in detail, giving voice to those who our society often demonizes and abandons. Stefan Whitley, a former student and graduate of the Rutgers program, joins our discussion today. He was incarcerated in multiple New Jersey prisons and is now engaged in criminal justice reform work. So welcome to you both, Chris. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you. So first, let's start with you, Chris. Would you mind reading an excerpt um, from the book um, about your first three classes? My first three classes did not go well. The students were wary and distant. They were nearly always silent when I asked questions about the new Jim Crow. I often waited uncomfortably until finally answering my own question. If someone did volunteer an answer, it was terse and neutral. Nothing that I or any informant or snitch assigned to monitor the class could report back to prison authorities. They watched carefully to assess who I was and what I was about. There is a natural and understandable mistrust of do-gooders. Those who come into a prison to burnish their own credentials as social progressives, who seek an unattainable bond of solidarity with the incarcerated and revel in the exoticism of prison, like visiting wild animals in a zoo. I knew the protocol by then. I didn't pretend to be hip. My collection of button-down shirts, round Harry Potter glasses, and Brooks Brothers suits precluded that. I did not pretend I knew who they were or what their lives were like, despite experiences in war zones that overlapped their own. I did not ask a student why he was incarcerated. I had learned that important prohibition from my, my neighbor, Celia, who first approached me to teach in a prison. Indeed, I rarely looked up their sentences, which I could do on the Department of Corrections search engines. I knew their crime, if they committed a crime, was used by the penal system in the wider society to freeze them in time as a criminal, even decades later. And they were acutely aware of this branding. And when you peeled back their defensive layers, you would find this wound. Wow, so powerful. Um, so how did you go about building trust with the um, 
inmates and how did you get them involved in the process of wanting to share information with you? I'll give my version, then I'll, I'll let Steph uh, speak to that. Uh, Steph, when I talk about wary and distant, that describes Steph in those first few classes, understandably. I, I mean, I would say part of what I just read, that I didn't pretend that I uh, understood where they came from. I, you know, I was real about who I was and where I came from. If anything, I kind of accentuated the nerd aspect a little more uh, than, uh, you know, was perhaps given my history accurate. But I think that you build relationships by showing that you care. Uh, and and I think that was part of it. And that, you know, my own kind of uh, attempt to be honest and upfront about who I was and all that. But then also that process of when they were writing scenes, ripped down the emotional walls, protective walls that they build, must build in the prison to protect themselves. And so that changed the atmosphere in the class uh, because it, it, it inadvertently, it wasn't premeditated, required people to be vulnerable. I mean, we had, these are tough guys. You don't cry in a prison. We had people choking back tears and got very emotional. They were speaking about trauma and grief and loss and experiences uh, that people around them that they had known for decades I had never heard. I mean, uh, I'm going to let Steph talk to this in a minute, but we had one guy, Lawrence Bell. He uh, was arrested at the age of 14. His father had died when he was two. Uh, his mother died when he was nine. He was living as an orphan in an abandoned house in Camden, New Jersey, which per capita is the poorest city in America and usually the most violent and most dangerous in terms of per capita homicides. He's great, 90 pounds. He's a child. He's barely literate. He's dragged into a Camden city police station and forced to sign a confession that he doesn't even understand. He gets to court. Now remember, this is a child being tried as an adult. He has no legal protection, no family. Nobody's watching out for him. He hears the charges that are read against him from the confession, attempts to dispute them, to say that they're untrue, is slapped down and uh, was given a sentence uh, that did not allow him to go before a parole board, which doesn't mean he's going to be out. It means he was not even allowed to request release until he was 70 years old. And what he had, what Steph had, what so many people in that classroom had was this remarkable ability to, to take these circumstances, uh, which would crush most of us, and just decide to become the best people they could become. So Lawrence, like Steph, was a stellar student. Uh, usually always an A, again, like Steph. And I remember teaching a history class with him and he waited till everyone left the room and he said, I know I'm gonna die in this prison, but I work as hard as I do because one day I'm gonna be a teacher like you. And he walks out. And people ask me about hope. Well, that doesn't change the monolithic horror of mass incarceration or what we have done to the poor, but I can live on that for a very long time. And just as a, caveat, a very courageous, wonderful public attorney, Jennifer Stiletti, spent two years getting him a resentencing hearing. I got to tell this story for Steph before I let him talk. So uh, getting him a resentencing hearing, and he doesn't have any family. He doesn't have any family, and they won't release, even if he was approved for release, for time served, they wouldn't release him until he had an address where he could go, and he had no address. So my garage was filled with uh, stuff for an apartment donated by former classmates of his who had gotten out. We raised money. We got him an apartment. He got an address. 
And at that resensing hearing, which I testified at, uh, I wore my clerical collar. I very rarely uh, wear it. I wore it to visit to, so I could get in the halfway house and visit Steph when he was in the halfway house. Steph's Muslim. Lawrence is Muslim. So at the end of the day, they don't tell you, you know, and they're all shackled. It's just awful. At the end of the day, um, I wait all day long. And in the, the day, it's just me sitting there. So the sheriff's deputy realizes that I'm there for Lawrence. And he, uh, the door opens. He turns to Lawrence and said, who's that effing minister? And Lawrence said, that's my pastor. That was a very kind of, you know, proud. I'm not trying to, I speak Arabic. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I have a profound respect for Islam. I'm trying to bring anyone to Jesus. But uh, that was a really profound moment for me. Um, and I'm going to let Steph, because he was in the class, he can tell tell what it was like from the other side. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, um, I, be I believe Chris, he using his own words as a war correspondent, he had to learn how to read people. And um, if you're a person who's going to be able to survive in a prison in a good way, um, you need to learn how to read people. And so you know, we developed those skills from an early age, from the streets and through the prison system. So for me, and I, I, I would think a lot of other guys, we were able to read who Chris was, just like a lot of other professors. And, you know, you actually just after a while, you still have the guard up because you have to make sure. But he just, you know, came off as a very genuine person. As we got to know him more, we realized that that was the case. And he he didn't try too hard to be uh, a teacher. Instead, he was an individual who was coming in to share, right? To share his knowledge, to converse with us and um, actually learn from us as well. You know, so even before we started writing the play, we went over um, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And so to hear him, how critical he was of the system when, he, we, when we, you know, went back and forth in dialogue about the book, those type of things opened the doors and, and, and at the same time, tore down some walls that we had up of, you know, distrust. Because, of course, when he first came in, it's who is this white guy, right? Um, you know, what is his motive? But um, turned out to be an amazing um, individual, not just a professor. So um, let's go back to this program, which um, I imagine for someone serving 20 years, Stefan, must have been some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. But before we get to the light at the end of the tunnel, um, while you're in the prison uh, in East Jersey, you get sentenced to solitary confinement, and they've got an, a nice euphemism for solitary confinement, administrative segregation, which um, I think it's now changed again. But uh, anyway, that was what it was called. And in 2009, you get sent to solitary confinement for 365 days, which I found incredible. Uh, for being in possession of a contraband cell phone that you were sold from uh, a prison guard for $200. So can you tell me a little bit about the conditions in that? Because I think many people would be surprised that this isn't some torture unit in the third world that we're talking about. And this is what you had to put up with before you were in this nice redemption program that Chris was unable, allowed to get you to get into. So if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about the conditions. Yeah, um, so I'll tell you about the conditions, but I was told about the conditions, you know, I've heard stories about it for years while I was incarcerated, but nothing prepared me for what it actually was. Um, so when they took me to the unit and told me this is my cell and opened the uh, gates, um, you could just hear the noise as soon as you walked on the tier, guys just screaming, maybe let's say 10 guys from different 
areas just nonstop yelling just to have conversation with one another because they were isolated. Um, and then when I walked inside the cell, it was just so small and everything was metal. Like all the walls were metal, the ceiling was metal. Um, the bed was metal, the, the, uh, the, the toiletry was metal. The only thing that wasn't was the floor and it was concrete. Um, the walls were so small that, you know, I could just reach my arms out and touch, you know, both walls. If I put my hands up high enough, I could touch the ceiling. Uh, and when it was hot, the walls would sweat. You know, men have died in there from extreme heat exhaustion. Uh, so it was just, it was like, it was, it was very degrading thing in my incarceration. And then you had so many mice there that the mice actually would just be playing games. They were playing tag, just running around. Um, and you have to worry about them coming to your cell at night, which they absolutely did. You know, mice climbing on people, people losing their minds. Some people were in there playing with mice, um, making them their pets. Uh, and a lot of the individuals really actually lost their minds, started harming themselves, even some killed themselves. And you ask like, why? Like, why would individuals actually harm themselves? There was no form of uh, social work that was adequate to try to address the issues of, you know, how individuals were feeling. Instead, the guards would basically come down the tier and you can hear anything in every cell because there was just bars on the wall um, as a door. And so if I can, if you're three cells down, I can hear anything you say to the individual. So they would, the uh, social worker would come once every two weeks and he would just stop at every cell as if he was giving out, you know, gum or something and say, hey, is everything okay in there? Um, do you feel like killing yourself? Do you have a hard time sleeping at night? And as Chris talked about in prison, there's certain things you don't supposed to do in prison and one of them is be weak. So no one is gonna say, yes, I'm having a hard time. I need to talk to someone, right? Um, I need help. I can't deal with this. And so everyone is saying, yeah, get away from my cell. Ain't nothing wrong with me, get out of here. But guys are absolutely losing their minds. And so, um, yeah, so the, the terminology they use, admitted segregation is just a slap in the face, you know, for that situation. And just one final thing, I know you've spoken about it to me, Steph, that had a, a, a kind of psychological cost on uh, uh, you said you got out and it was very hard for you to communicate. But I'll let you explain what that experience did to you. Yeah. So, again, a lot of people, as I said, there was a lot of noise and guys would be screaming out of the cells. I pride myself on being able to take any type of circumstances that are brought my way and take it as a challenge. And so I wouldn't yell out the cells. I wouldn't look for. Uh, human contact as far as someone to talk to. Instead, I would just read a book every day, right? Until I ran out of books to read. Um, but I got used to not having conversations with people. So I actually had to, once I, once I was released out of uh, um, ADSEG um, segregation, I had to pretty much relearn how to talk to people, so to say, um, and have conversations, you know? Um, and it felt weird. Like people would be trying to talk to me and um, one of my, my closest friends inside said to me one day, he said, you know, you have this five minute rule. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you'll give the people who matter to you about five minutes of your time. And then after that, you'll pretty much end the conversation. And I never realized that, you know, until, and then all of a sudden I started paying attention and he was right. You know, I stand there for a few minutes. And what I realized is the whole time I'm standing there for that five minutes, I really don't want to be standing there that long. And I don't feel like, like, I didn't feel comfortable having conversations. So, pretty much had to relearn how to, um, to converse with individuals, 
um, you know, humanize myself and, and get back to that human contact. But and that's just not me. A lot of people become that way. Um, I think some people haven't been blessed as I have been. Um, one of my close friends, um, Boris Franklin, who was inside with us as well, he actually told me one day, he said, listen, if you're going to be successful out on the streets, you need to um, start talking to people. And so I actually just started practicing on individuals, you know, um, a social worker walk by and I say, how you doing today? And that was my start. And I just kept building from there. You're listening to Cambridge Forum's discussion of what I learned in prison with author Chris Hedges talking about his latest book, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. We're joined with Stefan Whitley, one of his former students and a successful graduate of the Rutgers University program offered to inmates in the New Jersey prison system. So I just wanted to move to the more optimistic part of your time inside, which was, I guess, discovering about this program. You said to me that you were actually a nerd growing up, even though it wasn't a great environment. Your mom really was interested in you studying at school. And the reason why you got involved in crime was you were being bullied every day. And it was you learned to be a thug because it was a survival thing. It wasn't who you were. So in a way, you reclaimed the inner nerd by being in, in prison, correct? Yes. So tell me a little bit about how that felt to suddenly have the opportunity to be treated as Chris seems to call everybody that he worked with, an intellectual inside. I don't know if that is something he makes a conscious effort to do, but it must have been quite remarkable for someone to call you that. Yes, definitely. Um, and honestly, I had lost that belief in myself that I had early on um, as far as, you know, my academic prowess. I pretty much, um, the highest grade I completed and uh, on the streets was the eighth grade. You know, went from, like you said, being a nerd, finished my work within five minutes to getting bullied real bad and beat the crap out of him by 12, pretty much stopped going to school. And so honestly didn't see myself as this smart individual as far as when you talk academically, because and honestly, I, grad I graduated elementary school. I never, you know, I went to ninth grade a few days. I never went any further. I went to the streets. Um, and as you said, it was survival mode. But when I got inside, that was one of my trepidations um, when the program came. I was happy to have the opportunity. I, you know, read every book I can get my hands on. But to me, honestly, I thought that, you know, college must be super hard, right? Because this is something that people in my community don't go to. So that must mean that it's difficult. And I was surprised, you know, when I would have conversations with professors and they would be like, wow, you know, amazing close read or you did excellent, you know, had professors like Chris Hedges and uh, Cornell West, you know, uh, give you, you know, your flowers, so to say, and say, you know, this was amazing. Or I'm learning from you guys. And as you said, to actually call you an intellectual and see you as such. Yeah, it did. a To me, that was the most amazing thing about the college experience, not the things that I read and learned, although they have been extremely helpful, but to have individuals as such build up, build my confidence and build others confidence, you know, because um, we have been broken in a lot of ways. So but uh, apart from the self-esteem issue, it also gave you tools to yes. come out with, which yes. is extremely rare. I don't know, Chris, what the statistics are, but this must be a very small program in terms of the national population, which is now over two million incarcerated people in this country. Right. We top the global scale um, and number of people incarcerated. So 
Did you not feel, Chris, even though you, you say you're cynical, but <laughs> you must be optimistic to go in and teach, save these souls one by one, really. Um, is it not just a drop in the ocean? How do we get this? Yeah, I wouldn't use the word cynical about me. I think cynics, you know, don't do anything. I have a, you know, I was a newspaper reporter for a long time. I have a pretty good understanding of the systems of power and how they work and how they perpetuate themselves. And uh, so none of that was a mystery. As a war correspondent, that was my primary job, uh, I fought against murderous forms of power without any illusion uh, that anything I wrote, often at great risk, was the next day going to bring, uh, you know, about uh, any kind of radical change. Uh, so whether I was in El Salvador, or whether I was in Bosnia, the, the, the way photographers and reporters work is that there's usually reports of a large number of killings in a village in uh, the Serbs were quite active in terms of shooting reporters and photographers. 45 uh, foreign reporters were killed before I even got to Sarajevo. That happened in Salvador. 22 reporters were killed in Salvador, but it, the Serbs really targeted us. So they would cut off all access to a village. We would put satellite phones into our backpacks and walk in, and they would have snipers that would fire on us. Uh, so it was incredibly dangerous to document the atrocities, and yet that was a kind of victory so that uh, th they couldn't say it didn't happen. I think because I kept so close to the ground, I understood that maybe every victory is Pyrrhic, but it's still a victory. And, and so I look at mass incarceration. I just want to say in terms of the college program, it was, first of all, it was brought in, it was organized by the students, Tone, uh, Russ, I don't know if you were involved, Steph, and others. Um, these were, you know, intellectuals. These were people like Steph who had turned their cells into libraries. Uh, so they already had a very high intellectual level before any of us got in there. Uh, so, the, you know, we were dealing with a, a very select group within the prison. And so, you know, I, 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 I would say what fuels me is anger, not hate, anger. Uh, Augustine says that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they don't remain the way they are. Uh, and yet I'm very, have a very, and I think all of the students in the class like Steph as well, we have a very hard-nosed understanding of power. They, they have been victims of neoliberalism, victims of a, of a dysfunctional judiciary, victims of poverty, victims of police violence. I, you know, all of the interlocking mechanisms of institutional racism that keep the poor poor, they know how those systems work better than you or I. And that's what's so heroic is to stand up and assert your own dignity, to refuse to allow these oppressive systems to define you and tell you who you are. Uh, that doesn't mean, and uh, you know, I quote Solzhenitsyn in the book, I like the Gulag Archipelago, he talks about, a, actually he's a Serb, they're both in exile together, and uh, you know, just to fight back, it is a victory because in and of itself, it is a testament to your own strength and your own integrity, even if the system remains intact. And that's why I admire people like Steph so much. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think I could have gone through what he's gone through and become the person he's become. So we have two great questions have come in. Uh, Vincent has said, I myself have been incarcerated and will be finishing my bachelor's degree in communications next winter. What can we do to make people more informed of not only what goes on in prison, 
and change their minds, perspectives about the people that are released after an educational opportunity. I wrote the book to really shatter the demonization of these remarkable men, and I've taught in the women's prison too, women who are, I mean, I, when I wrote, a, I wrote a, uh, Steph knows him, I wrote a letter for Russ Owen, remarkable guy, uh, got out after 32 years. I said, look, this is one of the most remarkable people I've met in or outside prison. I meant it. I, I would say the same thing about Steph. And yet, you know, what's frustrating is that within mass media and within the wider culture, prisoners are those we are all permitted to demonize and hate. Uh, and I can't stand these TV shows. I don't have a TV, so I don't see them too much. Uh, but I hear a lot about them. My experience in prison is sitting around with people like Steph for two hours talking about James Baldwin. But that will make great TV. Uh, it makes great TV when guards are beating back animals. Uh, so that kind of stereotype uh, has just been so embedded. Uh, and that's, of course, intentional. Because when you dehumanize people, when you objectify people, uh, and then we've got racism on top of it, because disproportionately people of color are in our prison system, it allows people to exist off of false stereotypes. And if there was really one motive to write this book, it was that. It was to humanize my students and expose that lie. Yeah, so I think for the individual who was formerly incarcerated, I think back to when I first, and I was still incarcerated, I was in a halfway house going to Rutgers University in the day and coming back to incarceration at night. But while at Rutgers, you know, I was going to class and I was very open about my incarceration. I was a criminal justice major and they were talking about a subject that I knew more of than a lot of professors, right? And so I would chime in and the great thing that I loved about it was my professors at Rutgers Camden they invited that and they, you know, they actually said that to me, like, we need your voice. But I had other, uh, another classmate who was inside with me and he had been released, but he wouldn't say anything about his incarceration. And right then at that moment, me and him had a conversation one day as why he wasn't uh, willing to speak out and say that he was incarcerated like I was. I told him and I tell everybody, you know, and I, this is what I live by is that I refuse to be incarcerated by my incarceration. And so, you know, I'm quick to say to individuals, hey, by the way, I'm formerly incarcerated because if you speak to me first without knowing, so, you know, individual might say, wow, you're, you're intelligent or, you know, you can articulate yourself very well in which they don't say to white people oftentimes will say to black men, right? But that's another subject. However, uh, what I would say, yeah, and I'm also formerly incarcerated, right? And they'd be like, wow, I would have never thought so. And, and why? Because your perception of individuals who are incarcerated is what, right? And so now we can have a conversation. Um, but also when I carry myself in manners and anything I do in life now, I bring my brothers that are still incarcerated with me and those who have come out. And so if I carry myself in a way and I have now humanized myself in the eyes of many, then hopefully I can humanize those who are still left behind. I could change the narrative of what it is to be incarcerated, to be criminal, right? Because, you know, many people say, oh, he's criminal, especially if you're black and criminal, then you're, 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 you're not human. Even the 13th Amendment says that once you're incarcerated or convicted of a crime, you're a slave, you're no longer human, right? So that's what my answer would be. Own it. Own your incarceration or your, your, you know, your, your past incarceration but do so in a way in which people have to look back and say, wow, it must be something wrong with the system because 
this is an amazing human being and not just a you know formerly incarcerated or criminal type person. Not only do black lives matter, but incarcerated lives matter as well. I mean, I just want to say, uh, and, and that's why I wrote the book, that these are men and people of profound integrity, profound brilliance, uh, and have so much to contribute. And it's not just their families or their communities that are impoverished by their incarceration, but all of us. Kudos to you both. Chris, for your great tireless work, and you, Stefan, for making it through despite all the odds. Thanks, you Thank you. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, and you. So don't forget to step up and donate. Our website is www.cambridgeforum.org, and you can find a podcast of this program, as well as details of past programs and future programs. Thank you all everywhere for joining us. 